Hello and welcome to GTR Trade Insights. My name is Eleanor Bragg and I'm a senior reporter at GTR. In partnership with GTR, JP Morgan is producing a series of articles taking a closer look at some of the dominant narratives in trade and working capital finance. In this podcast, we'll be speaking to one of the experts behind these articles to learn more about working capital strategies in the face of continued supply chain disruption, rising inflation, and rate hikes. This installment builds on the latest JP Morgan Working Capital Index, which enables companies to benchmark their working capital performance against industry peers. It found that there is as much as 523 billion US dollars of liquidity trapped across the supply chain of the S&P 1500 companies as of year end 2021, up from 507 billion US dollars in the previous year. James Fraser, Global Head of Structured Solutions at JP Morgan, explains how the focus of working capital has shifted once again amid an ever more challenging global economic and financial landscape. So James, thank you very much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks, Eleanor. Now, James, the business disruptions that were caused by the large-scale shutdown of the economy during the pandemic forced many treasurers in 2020 to shore up their liquidity, right? And cash preservation was the key focus. How has that focus shifted today and what are treasurers prioritizing now? Thanks, Eleanor. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, it's, it's been obviously quite a run going back to 2020. And I think we'll touch on it. You can see it in some of the metrics from the Working Capital Index, uh, you know, for 2021 that was published this year. You know, but really... The theme is is kind of what's old is new again in that, you know, if you go back to kind of that February, March timeframe in 20, you know, there was really, there was a run on liquidity and there's obviously, you know, a lot of sort of degree of panic around building up working capital buffers, liquidity buffers. You know, we saw sort of capital markets seize up and demand, you know, effectively fall completely off a cliff as we saw experience these, you know, rolling lockdowns through developed markets. And, you know, kind of on the back of that, and again, we saw this in, in some of the metrics in 21, there's really a whipsaw effect. So markets, markets reopened, we saw extremely robust demand. Um, we saw as a result, a lot of stress in the supply chain as, you know, companies really struggled to procure, you know, sufficient inventory to meet that demand. And we also had not just a reopening and kind of resumption of, of economic activity, um, you know, kind of the way it looked in 2019, you, you also had some shifts around where we were seeing the demand, right? So there was a, a pretty significant shift, you know, towards more durable goods, right? And we saw, yeah, obviously, a significant run in, you know, industries such as housing, um, you know, a lot of investment uh, consumers were making in their homes. And what that meant was that, you know, the, the types of goods that needed to be built in inventory had shifted along with these, you know, changes in consumer demand. And that obviously put a lot of pressure on you know companies to build sufficient inventory levels with the right goods uh, while at the same time you still had you know lingering effects on the supply chain you know obviously particularly continued rolling lockdowns in asia and china specifically where 
you know, obviously a lot of the goods ultimately are being sourced from. And, you know, as we look into this year, you know, the the stress that we saw in, in kind of that first quarter of 2020 is not quite at the same levels, but we're, you know, we're steadily building into a period where now some of, I think, the concerns around liquidity are back. You know, we've seen, you know, rising stress in the form of obviously a lot of dollar strength, uh, which has resulted in, in a bit of a run on dollar liquidity. It certainly you know, impacted the price of that liquidity, you know, while at the same time, the reaction to, you know, the need to rebuild inventory levels to meet, you know, sufficient or to meet where you know demand demand existed, it means that balance sheets are bloated, right? So I think where we've seen a lot of focus has been where you've seen large year-on-year increases in inventory balances. How does that get absorbed? How does that get financed? What are potential solutions to address, you know, that inventory build? And at the same time, you know, continued focus on supply chain resiliency, you know, noting that, again, this this run on dollar liquidity that we're seeing, which is kind of looking at, you know, sort of historic levels of dollar strength within a short period of time, that means, you know, that puts a lot of pressure on suppliers. They're seeing, you know, higher financing costs, mostly in the form of, you know, kind of higher underlying base rates. You know, you've obviously seen a very rapid increase in interest rates that thus far has been absorbed. And what we're starting to see now is is a little bit more stress building in the actual credit spreads, Um, depending on the country, depending on the industry, obviously the the health and strength of of the supplier base. But that that seems to be, you know, the issue that we're looking at for the fourth quarter of this year. So I think, again, for Treasury, it's now we need to start thinking about liquidity buffers. We have, you know, we appear to be on the precipice of a, of a you know, meaningful recession at some point in the developed world. That means demand is, is starting to weaken, although it still remains relatively healthy. So now you have to start thinking about, okay, if demand is, is declining and I've built all this inventory, how do I absorb that? Um, and, and, and again, if we're seeing increased stress, how do I build up liquidity buffers to deal with, you know, what might be, you know, protracted period of, you know, lower demand, um, which obviously has a, has an impact on working capital. Exactly. You raise a lot of interesting points there. Um, I'd like to take a quick kind of deep dive into the data from the JP Morgan Working Capital Index, because it shows that cash conversion cycle performance improved, right, across the majority of industries, even though the dollar amount of trapped liquidity has increased year on year. So some people were doing something right. What were the standouts? And is there a widening gap now between kind of working capital leaders and laggards? So I think, you know, one important thing to note is that, you know, when you have these, this sort of whipsaw effect on demand, that we saw when you obviously when you're comparing 2020 versus 2021 2020 we saw obviously a big 
drawdown, on, uh, you know, overall on economic activity, which manifests itself in much lower sales year on year. So as a result, when you when you have a period like that, metrics generally tend to improve. And when you have the level of declines in economic activity that we saw in 20, you know, the, the metrics improve dramatically. Um, and it's sort of a similar effect in 2021, but obviously going the other way, which from a, you know, efficiency standpoint on working capital metrics, you know, looks, looks quite alarming, but I think it, you know, it's challenging to draw definitive conclusions when you have that sort of bullwhip effect across many industries from, you know, massive drops in, in sales and then a resumption of demand. You know, specifically, if you look at 21, you know, where you see the best or quote unquote, the best management of working capital metrics, it tended to be where you saw the most strength in sales. So, you know, healthcare, apparel and accessories, autos, um, I mean, healthcare is kind of its own story, obviously, given the nature of the pandemic and the related response by the by the pharma industry. But in, you know, obviously resumption of demand, you know, autos in particular is a good example where, you know, you see, you know, over a 20% improvement in sales across the industry, while at the same time you had, you know, a drawdown in inventory. And, you know, if you look again at, at some of the, some of the activity in 2021 across supply chains, you had port congestion, you had shortages of, of semiconductors. And so what that meant was inventories were drawn down and sales activity remained, you know, robust. Ultimately that became an issue in shortages, which, you know, we, as we saw into this year reflected in, in much higher pricing. But when you're again, looking at kind of just the 21 baseline, the metrics improve dramatically, particularly around DIO, where you have, you know, such large, you know, balance sheet notionals there, you know, I think overall, we saw a drop of three and a half days. And that obviously has a very large impact on, you know, the overall metrics. Yes, the industries where you saw maybe not such a uh, whipsaw effect on sales are the ones that, you know, probably on a comparative basis did not improve as much. So, Technology and software, you know, obviously subscription-based revenue models were much less impacted in 20 versus 21. Aerospace and defense, you know, still pretty strong activity in 20 through, you know, kind of air, aircraft and aviation deliveries. So it's, you know, it's obviously it is a mixed bag, but I think when you have this underlying whipsaw effect on sales, it, you know, I, I would caution against drawing meaningful conclusions. You really need kind of a cleaner baseline year on year to say, okay, who's really performing um, well versus, you know, industries or, or companies that are, are underperforming. You know, I think what you'll, what we'll, we're, we're going to tend to see in 22 is again, going back to my comments earlier, where you see this shift in demand to durables, you know, if you look at kind of the retail retail industry, the story this year has been has been one of 
you know, generally improving supply chains, right? So if you look at specific freight rates, you know, if you look at Shanghai to Los Angeles, those freight rates are down kind of 75% from peak. You've seen reductions in um, congestion, you know, at major ports. And so what what that's translated into is actually a build in inventory, um, not across all industries. There's still some key shortages, uh, obviously semiconductors being one example, uh, you know, impacting auto and other industries. But if you look at just retail, general merchandise retail, the, the issue, you know, the, the inability to, uh, you know, kind of forecast demand, which no one can do with, you know, near certainty, means that as demand as the demand outlook has weakened and the inventory builds to sort of ensure supply and procurement of goods to sell into the channel you know we probably overcorrected on inventory while at the same time the out sales outlook has has weakened so what that's meant has been greater discounting we've seen major retailers with significant profit warnings and earnings misses through gross margin uh, reduction, right? Which means write downs uh, and and discounts. Um, so I think, you know, when you move away from just the retail story and you look at, you know, it, it, industrials more generally, there again, there there's challenges that are building. We're, we're seeing still, I guess, I guess, the need to manage or risk mitigate Supply, the supply chain and, and procurement to ensure you can meet demand has led to, you know, against still a, this sort of bullwhip effect on inventories. And, you know, I think what you see particularly kind of second quarter versus third quarter, I suspect we'll see it when earnings are released, you know, in the coming 45 to 60 days for the third quarter Inventory balances are building. The no, the notional, you know, kind of quarter on quarter, they're up significantly. At the same time, we're seeing this weakening sales outlook. So, you know, the the need to focus in on, you know, liquidity management, um, you know, ensuring that it's you've got solutions in place in the event the sales outlook is is worse than expected, is is absolutely critical. Absolutely. And I think that's a really good point. The fact that, you know, we've seen a number now of very volatile years and actions taken by treasurers, by companies to shore up balance sheets, perhaps now are evolving. Um, just going now, sort of turning a bit kind of more of a future outlook, you know, we've already seen sort of macroeconomic volatility this year, inflation running at 40 year highs, liquidity starting to recede, um, given sort of tighter fiscal and monetary conditions. What does this mean now for corporates' cash positions, and what do they need to start thinking about for 2023? It's evolving at a pace that it's frankly hard to to keep track of. <laughs> you know, I think the, the the key story is is dollar strength. Um, you know, we've seen rate rises in terms of just the absolute change in Fed funds. That's the largest and fastest increase that we've seen going back to. To 1983, it's very easy to take sort of a U.S. centric view of that, of you know, kind of the impact of rates and you know, kind of the the near term impact on you know consumer demand and and kind of just generally U.S. markets, U.S. capital markets. 
the, the real story is outside the U.S. Um, you know, 62 thirds, 67, 68 percent of global trade is trades in dollars. Obviously, energy is, is the largest component of that. But what we're seeing is, you know, a lot of a lot of what, you know, we would assume to be very developed market currencies are under kind of extreme pressure, the pound, the euro, yen, yuan. Um, so even currencies that, you know, typically when, you know, recessionary fears are building, you would typically see strengthening. The real story here is not just the Fed raising rates, but also, you know, some of these countries relative energy position, right? So if your dollar is strengthening and you're short energy and energy's priced in dollars, you have sort of two issues, right? It becomes that much more expensive to procure, which puts further pressure on on your currency as deficits start to look like they're going to widen to source that energy. So I think what we're seeing, at least again, outside maybe just the U.S. centric perspective is the ability to procure liquidity at a reasonable price is, is changing daily. We've seen effective of run on dollar liquidity. We've seen pricing move up. You know, the bank market has generally been able to absorb a lot of that, you know, increased demand for liquidity, for dollar liquidity. But, you know, as pressures build, particularly in the Eurozone, you know, in Japan, I think that, you know, that that absolute capacity of the bank market will become constrained. So the name of the game is if you need liquidity, the sooner you get it, um, the better off you will be, even if you're paying a higher price for it. And I think when you, again, kind of think through the near term outlook from a tr supply chain perspective, you know, there a lot is still produced in Europe and in the EU. Obviously, Germany has a has a massive industrial base. It's been one of their key strengths. That's been predicated on cheap energy, and and a relative cost advantage. That has changed and is not going to change, you know, anytime soon. I think if you if you have a reasonable view of how things are unfolding, so that energy deficit reflected in much higher pricing means we're starting to see kind of rolling shutdowns within certain industries where obviously um, there's a lot of you know energy ultimately is the higher cost so it's any heavy manufacturing obviously petrochemicals directly directly correlated it, you know we're seeing shocks start to build and i i think the the story around supply chains for the next six months will be a new type of um, supply chain shock which will be based on what we're starting to see unfold in in Europe and, and Germany specifically. There's a lot of key industries, a lot of key, you know, raw material inputs that are have, have been starting to be impacted by some of these shutdowns. So it's, you know, certainly the pressure is building, the need for liquidity buffers is there. You know, and thus far it's been a relatively order orderly process, you know, generally just slightly higher pricing for some of these, you know, bilateral bank facilities. But, you know, I, th I think that pressure will continue to build and at some point capacity is likely to be constrained. Some real food for thought there. I think amid all this pressure, just as a final question, what working capital levers can treasurers pull to kind of mitigate balance sheet impact? And, you know, what can they ask of their banking partners? So the answer is a lot. We saw, you know, increased demand going back, you know, sort of the, the early pandemic period, a lot of activity around receivables, 
as a way to obviously monetize existing kind of current assets to build up buffers. You know, we've seen a very high level of demand for receivable solutions where clearly certain industries such as um, commodities, you know, you have, we've had, you know, significant price increases year on year and this against this sort of inflationary backdrop. What that's done for a lot of companies where, you know, they have exposure to commodities and, and that underlying inflation has, has meant, you know, the receivables balances have grown. Um, DSO, you know, has, has increased and, you know, the ability to kind of manage counterparty credit limits and, you know, kind of offset some of that DSO increase has led to a lot of discussions around receivable solutions. I think the biggest story right now is absolutely inventory finance. I mean, it's, it's a product and a solution that's, you know, I think many corporates have spent time on for the last two years, again, against that backdrop of large inventory builds, but now given the sales outlook and the need to kind of increase those liquidity buffers, those conversations are, are, you know, first and foremost with, you know, just about every major client that, that we're calling on, I think, you know, we're going to see increased adoption, you know, the devil's in the details on the, on the structure, but I do think just given the size of, of the problem around, around inventory builds with a deteriorating sales outlook makes that probably the most relevant solution. And I, and I do expect we'll see a significant increase in the number of deals that are done. Um, and then the corresponding impact, you know, for those corporates that do execute, I think will be material. These are not, you know, small, small tickets. Uh, they're, 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 lo- they're likely to be large and like to have, you know, materially beneficial impacts on, you know, obviously balance sheet and, and working capital metrics. And, you know, I think, Clearly, when you're in an inflationary environment and you're one of your largest concerns is if you're sitting in procurement is, again, your health of your supply chain, your ability to procure, you know, I think supply chain finance solutions with, you know, sort of a lens around liquidity and financial health of the supply chain still needs to be top of mind. You know, I think the ability to go, you know, look at a supply chain finance solution purely as a means of, you know, facilitating terms extension. Um, that's really not where the market is right now, because it, again, it's sort of in that inflationary environment, your willingness to open, you know, existing supply contracts and start renegotiating price is low. Um, but your interest in ensuring you can still, your supplier is still in you know, sufficient financial health to meet orders and, and you know, sort of absorb their own working capital demands is critical. So I think, you know, obviously supply chain finance, dynamic discounting are tools to ensure, you know, liquidity continues to be there. And, you know, that as the stress builds and stress builds, particularly in emerging markets on the on the back of some of the trends we've already highlighted, you know, that need to preserve liquidity will, will continue to be there. Um, and, you know, we, we obviously still see significant demand for that solution.
James Fraser at JP Morgan. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for GTR Trade Insights. For more insights into working capital strategies in straightened times, please do check out JP Morgan's article series at Global Trade Review at www.gtreview.com.